Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Television. Visit grassrootstv.org for on-demand community archive footage, as well as educational, inspiring, and entertaining local programming. A contribution to Grassroots TV allows us to bring your voice to the valley and to preserve media that will be enjoyed by future generations. Visit us at grassrootstv.org and follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Twitter. We encourage you to support all the local businesses and citizens that generously underwrite grassroots programming and play an integral role in nurturing open communication among the residents of the Roaring Fork Valley since 1972. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Community Network. Hi everyone, welcome. I'm Adrian Broder. I'm the other director of Aspen Words. And um, it has been just an astonishing and inspiring and thought-provoking week. And I'm very excited to um, be moderating this particular panel, which I have a feeling is going to be meaty. So um, our panel is called The Writer's Life the best of times, the worst of times, and it was billed as follows. The world can feel like a complicated place these days. What does it mean to be a writer in this cultural and political moment? So we're going to have a conversation about how to navigate noise and create art um, in chaotic times. And first, I'd like to introduce these three lovely writers to my left. Um, and I'm going to give a little bit of a truncated uh, introduction of each of them because I feel like they've been introduced a lot this week. But to my immediate left is Margot Lee Shetterly, who is the author of the number one nonfiction bestseller, Hidden Figures, which tells the story of three African-American women who changed the space race. Margot was also an executive producer of the blockbuster movie based on that book, In the Center is Peter Ho Davies, whose most recent novel, The Fortunes, explores the lives of Chinese Americans and the fractures of immigrant family experiences. He is also the author of The Welsh Girl, as well as two collections of short stories. And to the far end is Courtney Sullivan, whose most recent novel, Saints for All Occasions, is a story of two sisters who immigrate to America and the secret that drives them apart. She is also the New York Times bestselling author of three other novels and the co-editor of a feminist essay anthology. Would you please give them a warm welcome? So I, um, I thought I'd kind of warm us up slowly and maybe talk a little bit about how you got started and some of the more personal noise before we go out to the real roar of the... Um, the greater world out there. And one of the things that I'm curious about is, um, is your upbringing. And if you came from families that had, um, that cultivated creativity and was art part of your upbringing. And do you want to start, Courtney? Um, sure. Hi, everybody. I cannot see you, but I know you're out there. Um, <laughs> So I grew up in a large Irish Catholic family in the Boston area, and um, my dad was always a huge reader. He continues to be a huge reader. Um, no one else in my family is particularly interested in books. Um, my dad didn't do any reading during 
high school, um, any of the assigned reading. So when I was in high school, he decided he was going to like better himself and read what we were reading. But the problem was that I was just like my father, and I didn't read any of the assigned reading. Um, so, but I was always reading. I just wasn't reading what someone told me to read. Um, so there was a morning when my dad was driving me to school, and he was trying to engage me in this conversation about the grapes of wrath. And I spent a long time faking it until he was like, you haven't read this, have you? And I was like, no. But I didn't grow up in a family of readers or writers, but I grew up in a family of storytellers. And when I was very young, I used to go under the table at family dinners and eavesdrop on what everyone was saying. And after reading one of my favorite books, Harriet the Spy, I started bringing a notebook down there with me and taking notes on them, which is like, this is what you see here, is the notes I was taking <laughs> under the table. I always say that um, I learned about revision from them because they're the kind of people who tell only the same 20 stories over and over again. But each time, they make it a little more interesting. They put themselves a little closer to the center of the action. But so were they encouraging when you told them you wanted to be a writer and go into this? Or was it sort of like, what on earth would that look like? I think I was really lucky. My parents were always really encouraging of that. Um, I know a lot of people whose families didn't want them to go anywhere near that sort of creative path. Um, but my parents were always kind of like, that sounds exciting. You know, you need to also make money and have a job, but sure, try that. Um, you know, I always tell this story that my first novel came out. It was about a group of friends who went to Smith, as I did. And when my second novel came out, um, or I was writing my second novel, I should say, Maine, which was about this big Irish Catholic family from Boston, my family got wind of this, and they were very, very nervous. So I was out on a book tour for commencement, and I did an event in Boston, and like 20 members of my family came to the bookstore. And afterward, we went out for dinner, and one of my uncles, who's not usually a very effusive man, stood up and he's like, we just want to tell you that we love you and we're so proud of you. And it's so important to get this out now because when your next book is published in a year, none of us will ever be speaking to you again. <laughs> How about you, Peter? Oh, I mean, actually, I was, um, I was rather envying Courtney's story there. I wish I had come from a family of storytellers. Um, you know, my parents, my, my father is Welsh and my mother is Chinese from Malaysia, uh, were not much in the way of storytellers. There would be, um, I think in some ways, certainly on the Welsh side, that's a slightly secretive culture, um, closed-mouthed in various ways. And so what I would overhear at um, family gatherings, what I could overhear, that is, because the Chinese ones were in Chinese and the ones that were in Welsh were in Welsh, um, would often be fragments of narratives. So my sense of, I say, even how my parents met was very much like a little glimmer here of a detail, a little glimmer there of a detail. And I feel like one of the ways I became a storyteller was trying to figure out how you joined those dots, right? So that the, for me, fiction is uh, something that fills in vacuums, fills in gaps in the untold stories. Um, and, uh, you know, so while I slightly regret not having storytellers as family members, I think that in an odd and roundabout way was inspiring to me. Um, it's also true, though, that I think neither of my neither of my parents were great readers. My mother um, had a long shelf of Ag Agatha Christie that I recall as a child, um, and a lot of Reader's Digest condensed books. I think there was a lot of um, reading for self-improvement going on in that space. And I can't actually remember my father ever reading a book. Um, I can remember myself buying him occasional books, 
often sports biographies, and I'm not even sure he read those. Um, and I used to be anxious about that, and I think it played into their anxieties about me wanting to become a writer. You know, I think I'd mentioned to some people earlier on that I was a physics major in college. My father was an engineer. I think that all made sense to him. Yeah. He'd not gone to college, so the idea that I would go a little further uh, seemed to him like the next logical step in some ways. Um, so when I decided to leave physics and try and, uh, well, first do an English degree but become a writer, I think that thing felt very alien to him. And also, in a British context, almost snobbish, I think, in a way. It was putting on airs and graces. Um, and for years, he was disapproving of what I was doing. And I had the sort of not very edifying experience in my 30s, even, of going home to visit my parents and sitting at the top of the stairs and hearing my parents arguing about me. Right? That's the kind of thing you do as a child when you're 8 or 9 or 12. Um, but doing it when you're 30, believe me, is a fairly humbling experience. Um, and what's interesting about that is that um, you know, my father, I, you know, in ways that I now understand as a father, was anxious, as we all ought to be, about the writing career. It's an anxious trajectory, um, for one's child at least. And uh, my mother, I think, shared some of those anxieties, but in an effort to understand what I was doing, she started taking extension classes in creative writing. And so this would have been in uh, when she was retired, I think. She is still taking those classes 25 years later. And now when I go back to visit her in England, uh, I go and visit those classes and chat to them and talk about my books. I think I went with my son, Owen recently. I read my book. He showed off his yo-yo tricks. They loved that. It was kind of great. Um, I, I should say, uh, you know, it, it was for a while actually a source of great angst that my, not only did my father not read, but he didn't read me. He had anxieties about what I might write about. I'm so jealous of that. I wish my family wouldn't read my book. Exactly. It, it did begin to feel like a gift at a certain point. I, I'm fairly sure he won't read this. I know my mother will, but I know she will then translate it in ways to him that will seem fairly safe. So that was actually, oddly, a great imaginative gift and a great freedom in strange ways. Uh, so um, my, um, my upbringing, my, my father worked at NASA. Um, he's a retired research scientist, atmospheric research scientist. Uh, my mother was an English professor, also now retired. And I didn't know any professional writers, any professional artists. Uh, any people who would uh, in any way illustrate that that was a possibility of a career. So I, I never even considered that that was something that I would do at any point in my life, really. Um, and so, uh, you know, my dad was, was very much of the idea of, listen, become an engineer or a scientist and you will always have a job. You know, that had been his upbringing. It was a great career. He loved it. It was very stable life for us. And uh, I didn't become an engineer or scientist. I became an investment banker, which they, my parents kind of thought was a little bit like sign of the devil. But, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, very much internalized this idea of you have to have a job, you have to support yourself, you know, and, and that it would never occur to me that, that being a writer was something um, that where you could do that. Um, and really, for me, the transition happened um, as, as an entrepreneur and working at internet startup companies in New York and, you know, that were creative startup companies. Uh, and then my husband and I started a magazine together. It was an entrepreneurial endeavor, but it was a creative endeavor. And that, you know, that felt like, ah, okay, there's, there's this creative thing and there is this... Um, business, you know, kind of square-minded thing and, and, you know, and they are together. Um, you know, and my, my parents, you know, it's sort of crazy. You tell your parents, well, hey, my, 
uh, I'm getting married and moving to Mexico and starting a magazine with my husband. And, you know, they, they think that's kind of crazy, um, obviously. But, um, you know, by the time I came to writing, they'd sort of seen all of that. Um, and, and they were able to, you know, I think, think that this was sort of like perhaps one step more stable, in fact. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, the thing is the fact that, um, that I was writing about, in effect, about them, yeah. about their, about my upbringing, but really about their upbringing and about their friends and their career and the people who made them what they are. Um, it, it was something that was, at this time in my life, a really wonderful thing to share with them. And so becoming a writer has also been very much about unearthing and trying to understand a lot of these um, deep family and, and community and societal issues and working them out, not directly through my story, but through the stories of people um, who are very much connected to mine. So those are all reasonably supportive family cultures for it. I mean, you know, different, but no one was, you know, absolutely do not do this. So um, let's talk about the noise, the noise in our personal life to start with. And we all have to deal with this. You have a baby, you've got another on the way, we have jobs. Um, you know, some people have the YouTube cat thing <laughs> that we heard about yesterday. Um, but there are these things that keep us busy and distract us from our work. And then there are also, I mean, you are all three arguably completely at the top of your game. And so you go on big book tours and you're invited to fantasy literary conferences. And how do you protect the space, um, you know, the sacred space of your creative writing and your time to yourself? And, and is that a tricky thing to manage and anyone take it on? Uh, I actually was talking to a, a writer who's taking a workshop on the way over here, and we were talking about how he has a full-time job and when to write when you have a full-time job. And um, when I had a full-time job, I, I wrote my first two novels with a full-time job. I was working at the New York Times. And I actually think that, especially when you're starting out, it is a gift in a way. It sounds really stupid to say this, but to have that because you only have so many hours in the week when you're going to write. So you might say you're a writer, but are you really spending those hours in the week writing? For me, I was. You know, I was in my 20s and I was spending every Saturday and Sunday writing this novel in my little apartment. Um, at a certain point, I was like, my new rule is I have to talk to at least one person a day because otherwise I'm getting really weird. Um, but like, it was a lot of work, you know, and a lot of work that you don't know if it's ever going anywhere. So you have to also love that work that you're doing. Then I spent a few years where I didn't have a, any job besides writing. And I found so many ways to procrastinate. And, you know, Twitter is good for like six hours a day of just lost time. Now I have a one-year-old. I'm five months pregnant. I have never been more efficient than I am right now because it's almost like having the full-time job again. I have a babysitter, and I only have her for a certain number of hours, and I better spend them writing, or I'm just such an idiot. What am I doing? You know, so I wouldn't dare go on Facebook or any of that while I have a babysitter. And I also have this motivation that I got to get a draft done before this next one comes and my brain turns to mush for a few months. Um, so... What I'm saying is you should all go home and have a baby. Um, uh, <laughs> been there, done that. Um, 
And the other thing, I, for me anyway, is like the internet is a drug. Um, you just have to, it's like if you like binge eat chocolate cake, the only answer is don't buy chocolate cake. And uh, the same with the internet. I work in a writer's space where I don't know the internet password because if I have the access, I will use it. I don't have the willpower to resist. Uh, there's also a program in, called Freedom, and I'm sure there are others too, where you actually block yourself. You, you pay to have the computer, then you pay to block yourself from the internet, which is just so sad, but it, it, but it <laughs> works. Oh, well, we could go in order, I guess. I'll, I'll, uh, you guys actually, can pop in. You don't have to be in order. <laughs> Courtney actually said a lot of the things I was, I was thinking about myself. I was very precious, I think, about my writing process when I was younger. Um, spoiled a little bit by graduate school, I'm sure, but it was about that, that sense of I'm not going to bother to sit down today unless I have a clear three hours of time. Um, but that clear three hours of time, of course, is exactly why you procrastinate. You fill all that time. I, I, I'm actually kind of curious about other people's procrastination habits more than their, actually, their writing habits, conceivably, just to share that misery. Um, I think for me, it always had to be something slightly useful to me because then I could feel like I'm still doing something helpful. Uh, laundry was my drug. <laughs> it is, yeah. And my wife would complain that it was like the laundry boomerang. Something would go down the chute and it would be back on the hangar that afternoon because I was doing as much laundry as you want, I would do that stuff. Um, so I did a lot of that. And then I, I think very much like you, when I had, uh, when we had my son and he was not much of a napper, right? So you could maybe get 40 minutes, you know, a day, that kind of thing. And that was the only 40 minutes I had while trying to finish a novel. And you become very focused in that moment. But, but I think what, uh, what changed for me in that regard was the feeling that um, I was reminding myself that I wasn't only writing when I was at the desk or at the computer, that I was getting ready for those 40 minutes, that in the shower I was thinking about what am I going to revise today, which pages, which problem, which issue needs to be addressed in some ways. And I like that idea now of, um, or I try not to measure my writing by the time exactly that I put in the hours, even the minutes, but thinking time. I'm always interested in, did I learn a new thing about the piece today? And if that takes five minutes, that's great. If it takes longer, fine. Um, but I'm trying to measure it by a deepening understanding of the work, I think, in certain ways. This is actually something else we were talking about on the walk over here, which is like, most of you probably have full-time jobs and maybe you have kids and you have, you have these demands on your time. Um, and it's just not realistic that you're going to be able to write five hours every day because you're exhausted when you get home at the end of the day. So how do you keep the book alive on days when you're not writing? Um, when I, my son, but between the time my son was born and he was like three or four months old, I knew I wasn't going to write, I wasn't going to work on a book. Um, and I didn't even want to, I just wanted to spend the time with him. But I knew what my next book was going to be. And so um, whenever an idea came to me for this book, I made sure no matter what I was doing um, to type it into my phone, send myself an email with just whatever it was, jot it down quickly. And all these emails had the same subject line. So four months later, when I came out of the newborn fog, I went into my Gmail, I searched for that subject line, and here's all the thoughts I've had about this book for the last four months. And that's really handy when you're, like when I had a job full time, I would just write on the back of dry cleaning receipts. And then my Saturday morning routine would be to take all the pieces of paper out of my bag and um, <laughs> put them on the table and try to figure out what I meant. <laughs> so this is just a more tech-savvy way of the same, I suppose. <laughs> well, I, I'm
Is this one? Oh, that works. Um, <laughs> so um, Hidden Figures came out in September of 2016, and since then, it's been like a, running a marathon at sprint pace, which is wonderful. Um, but now I am on deadline for a new book, and I'm, what I'm trying to do now is to learn from people like you guys and how to turn this into a job. You know, I don't want to be the person who is, uh, you know, the last two weeks before the deadline, kind of living on coffee and red wine and whatever else and trying to, <laughs> you know, get this thing finished. You know, I, I spent enough time of my life working in an office where you have deadlines, you have responsibilities to other people, you have to get the laundry done, which, by the way, is also my very favorite procrastination technique, as Aaron will attest. Um, you know, I, so what I'm trying to do now is to figure out how to take all of those demands um, of writing, of all of the other responsibilities that go with the book, of supporting the book, and turn it into something that is a job like what I, you know, kind of know how to do from before. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's, that's really one of the things, to sort of create some structure for yourself, especially if you've been in situations where other jobs have given you the, the structure. And that's, um, I think that's a real challenge. It's funny because it makes me think that in fact, I feel like my full-time job is not necessarily writing, it's maintaining my faith in myself as a possible writer, the belief in that. <laughs> um, it's like maintaining morale, right? Because we all get beset by doubt and anxiety and guilt that we're not doing it enough. So I like to find ways of either encouraging myself or rewarding myself or forgiving myself. Um, my wife used to come in uh, after a day at work, uh, I write at home, and she would say, oh, I smell bacon in the air. You must have had a bad writing day because you rewarded yourself or you cheered yourself up <laughs> with a bacon sandwich. Um, and then she would sometimes come in and say, bacon, bad day? And i said, say, no, it's kind of a good day. And so she realized I was also rewarding myself with bacon. Um, so that's my secret, bacon. That's the Bacon's bacon. good. You know, I, I have to say, one of the things, Peter and I were on a panel earlier this year um, with the poet Rita Dove, and one of the things that she said that I, I felt like, oh my God, she's given me permission. She said, listen, you're going to have a lot of friends who have normal, you know, who get up in the morning, who leave their house, who come back home, and they are not going to understand that you have all of these other things to do in addition to writing, that, you know, that you've got a different kind of work schedule and different pressures. And sometimes you're just going to have to say no. Like sometimes you're going to say, you know what, why can't you go to this thing or do it this way? And you're just going to have to, you know, if you believe in what you're doing and you believe that it's important, you're just going to have to say no. And that is, and they will understand because they want to support you, you know. And, and that was, you know, when she said that, I was like, you know, that is, that is excellent advice, which is really hard to take yourself off the hook from not trying to do everything, which is, of course, not possible. That also makes me think, and Courtney, with, with a, you, have, you have a one-year-old and you've got another on the way. Um, it makes me think about that tension between a sort of, sort of selfishness, the protection of time, the saying to loved ones, I'm going to lock myself in a room now and write for the next three hours if I have that time, and the kind of selflessness that we expect in our human interactions most of the time, we particularly expect with family and with children, of course. Um, yeah, when I stopped working a full-time job and started writing, um, I felt like many of my family members and friends thought I had just become like a lady of leisure and it would be almost like, could you pick up this package for me today since you don't do anything? And I'm like, right. I am doing something. Um, 
So, yeah, that's a tricky thing. I want to invite you to join me and some of the people in my workshop. We were talking about this yesterday. We're doing a summer of no angst. I want uh, You can all join us. So <laughs> the thing is, I, I'm a novelist. I live in Brooklyn, and so I, you, know, you cannot throw a pebble without hitting 10 novelists in Brooklyn. Uh, a lot of my friends are novelists, and we spend a great amount of time just being full of dread and angst and thinking, this story is stupid. Why am I telling it? What's the point? And you all do that, too, because that's just part of being a writer. And I've only ever met one guy who told me, like, I'm brilliant and what I produce is amazing. And I'm like, I bet your writing sucks, right? <laughs> um, but for the most part, we punish ourselves so much and it takes up so much time. And so lately, because I don't have any time uh, to waste, I am just like, I'm finishing a draft before this kid is born and the thing I can cut out and save myself the time is the agony and the grief. If you say you're gonna do it forever, it's not gonna work. So I'm just like, this summer, no. And in September, I will be full of dread and, and self-loathing. But for the summer, I'm just taking the summer off from that. And I will check in on you sometime yes. over the summer and, and report back if she's telling the truth here. It's really worked so far. It's crazy, but I'm telling you, it's worked. Okay, how about we hear just a bit of some, some short readings from each of you, out of order. You can't go first, Courtney. Hi, Wilco. So, um, so the piece that I'm going to read... Um, from my book has to do with Katherine Johnson, who is uh, one of the main characters in Hidden Figures and is um, well known now as being the mathematician who provided the calculations for, among many missions, John Glenn's 1962 orbital flight. And um, I grew up in Hampton, Virginia, and knew Katherine Johnson because she worked with my father and she knew my mother and, you know, she was part of our community. Um, but I really got to know her as a person uh, doing this research for hidden figures. And you know, the thing about Katherine Johnson, she really is an exceptional person, not just because she's a brilliant mathematician, which she is, but I mean, she is one of these people who has this extreme center of gravity about the world, about difficulty, about personal tragedy. Um, you know, it, there's, there's nothing that, you can do in life to turn yourself into a Katherine Johnson. You know, I really, you just have to be, it is something about her nature that, that makes her that way. But there's a lot that you can do to learn from her. And I have learned so much from her um, about how to be in the world. And this, this passage really has to do with that. And it has, um, these lessons that I have learned from her have helped me tremendously, um, both writing the book, but also, um, existing not just as a writer but as a citizen um, you know as a person who's concerned about the future of our country and our planet who wants to know what to do how to treat other people um, anyway so th that this is what this is sort of goes to the core of Katherine Johnson and who she is certainly much of Katherine's equipoise came from her father Joshua Family lore had it that he possessed unexplained skills and senses, that his nimble hands could spirit away afflictions in both humans and animals. Even after he went to work for the Greenbrier, neighbors black and white would call on him to see sick horses through a period of crisis. Years later, Joshua Coleman's granddaughters would recall their grandfather saying that from their first meeting, he had a premonition that Jimmy Goebel, this is Katherine Johnson's first husband, would not live a long life. 
Perhaps Catherine, with some intuition of her father's vision, drew strength from the knowledge that her husband's premature death was part of a way of things, however painful. Or maybe it was her father's pragmatic dictum, you are no better than anyone else, and no one is better than you, that disposed her to see the hardships of her life as a fate shared by everyone, her good fortunes as an unearned blessing. With her father's words to buoy her, Catherine Goebel observed the manifestations of segregation at Langley, decried the injustice they represented, yet did not feel the weight on her own shoulders. Once she crossed the threshold of Building 1244, she entered a world of equals, and she refused to behave in any way that would contradict that belief. It was a part of her nature that some of the other black employees at Langley found mysterious, even vexing. How could she be so dismissive of the racism in their workplace, however passive, when her very entry to the laboratory had been under segregated circumstances? Catherine Goebel's genuine comfort with the white men she worked with allowed her to be herself with them, no mask required. When the Supreme Court announced the Brown versus Board of Education decision ending legalized school segregation in 1954, she and the engineers had a long conversation about it, talking about the matter forthrightly rather than avoiding it the way driver swerves to keep from hitting a fallen tree in the road. We decided we were all for it, Catherine remembered. Perhaps as, Kath as much as Catherine's expectation that she would be treated as the equal of the engineers she worked with was her willingness to treat them as equals, to acknowledge that their intellect and curiosity matched hers, that they were bringing to the professional relationship the same sense of fairness and respect and goodwill that she was that paved the way for her ultimate success. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, so I, um, when I was thinking about what to read from the book, uh, you know, lots of little extracts that I've dipped into from time to time, but I thought about our title today, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, and I did think, I honestly tried to find a section that was The Best of Times, but it's a novel of literary fiction, so it's mostly just Worst of Times. <laughs> um, and then I thought, well, I have to find The Worst of the Times. Um, so this is a story, um, there's a timely reason for it as well. A section of the book is about the, um, the hate crime murder of uh, Vincent Chin, uh, a Chinese-American man in Detroit in 1982 who was uh, killed in a bar fight or in the aftermath of a bar fight because he was mistaken for a Japanese, uh, killed by a couple of auto workers angry at Japanese imports uh, threatening their jobs. And uh, that happened in 82. It happened on the 19th of June. That was the, the night of the attack. That, as you will recall, uh, was last night's date. Uh, Vincent um, was killed on the occasion of his bachelor party. That's why he was at the club. He died four days later on the 23rd of June uh, on what would have been his wedding day. Uh, so I'm going to read a, a little section. Told from the point of view of a um, uh, Chinese-American friend of his who was there on the evening and witnessed um, the attack um, and had known Vincent since high school. Um, I think maybe all you need to know to follow this is that um, uh, Vincent in high school was a, uh, a student athlete. He was a runner. It was Vincent's idea. He told me to run. Only he didn't run. He didn't say run. He said, scram. It was the last word I heard from him in English, so I've given it a lot of thought. Scram is what you say to a kid, isn't it? A nuisance. Or maybe what naughty kids say to each other after they ring a doorbell. Scram. 
not run. He was a runner. Running to him meant winning, running towards something. Scram, I think, meant running away. If he said run, we might have both run. But scram was for me, because he didn't run. He waited for them. He could have gotten away. When Evans hopped out of the car, a Plymouth for the record, it was still moving. It ran over his foot, for God's sake. It was the Keystone clan out there. You think Vincent couldn't have outrun these guys? He lettered in track, but he was done running. He'd started it at the club, after all. He would have fought in the gravel and dogshit parking lot outside, too, if Evans hadn't gone for the bat. He wanted to fight them. Maybe he figured he could make Evans drop the bat, shame him into a fair fight. Maybe he figured just two on one, they wouldn't feel they needed the bat. This was on Woodward, under the golden arches there, fluorescent tubes in the sign humming like cicadas. I didn't run far to the edge of the light, just far enough to live, just far enough to watch. Scram. Who was he to tell me to scram? Who was I to listen? He was grappling with pits when Evans caught him across the knees as if reaching for a grounder, after which Vincent couldn't have run, even if he'd wanted. Then a line drive to the chest as he went down, two more to the head when he was on all fours, swinging for the fences. I did run back, but too late. Vincent's last words, it's not fair to me in Chinese while I cradled his ruined head, blood bubbling from his mouth and nose as he spoke, blood pouring from his ears like oil. His skull felt like rotten fruit. The blow to the chest broke a jade charm, a little carved elephant that had been his mother's that Vincent wore on his chain, a bad omen to Chinese, though you hardly needed an omen to foretell what was coming next. The ambulance took him to Henry Ford Hospital, the same hospital used to take his dad for dialysis, where he lingered for a few days, his mother by his bedside, calling him, Vincent, Mama coming, Vincent, as if from a great distance, before she finally gave consent to turn him off. I'm to too sad to read. <laughs> Um, oh, that was so beautiful. Oh, I thought mine was going to be sad, but no, you take the cake. Uh, but I'm still going to read a passage that's kind of sad. Um, oh, okay. Compose. Okay. So um, I don't know if my husband's here, but he was. Um, if you see a tall man in a Red Sox hat and he has a baby with him, that's him. Um, earlier, I was trying to describe him to someone, and I was like, she's like, he'll probably be the only person in here with a baby. I was like, yeah, right, okay. So my poor husband flew here alone with our one-year-old, and I asked him to bring me a copy of the book, and he didn't notice, but it's actually the large print. I just don't want you to think the book is actually this long. Um, and I'm dead serious when I say this. If there's anybody in here who reads in large print, this is your gift from me tonight. So please, <laughs> let me know. Um, uh, so... This is a novel about um, immigration, uh, religion, family. And going back to actually what you were saying earlier about the storytelling, you know, yes, I come from a family of storytellers, but we're Irish Catholic. So equal parts storytelling and withholding. Uh, storytelling and repression, uh, which I think is a very interesting mix, really. And, and that's something that this book delves into quite a lot 
Um, it is about two sisters who immigrate from Ireland in the 50s. One goes on to be the matriarch of a large family in Boston. The other becomes a cloistered Catholic nun. And um, they are driven apart by something that happens in the family, and they don't speak for many, many years. Um, uh, until the present day of this book when uh, the oldest son of one of these two women, well, the mother, uh, has uh, passed away suddenly. So this is just the very opening of the book. In the car on the way to the hospital, Nora remembered how, when Patrick was small, she would wake up suddenly gripped by some terrible fear that he had stopped breathing or spiked a deadly fever, that he had been taken from her. She had to see him, to be sure. They lived then on the top floor of the three-decker on Crescent Avenue. She would practically sleepwalk through the kitchen and past Bridget's door and then down the hall to the boys' room, her nightgown skimming the cold, hard wood, the muffled sound of Mr. Sheehan's radio murmuring up from downstairs. The fear returned the summer Patrick was 16 when they moved to the big house in Hull. Nora would awaken, heart pounding, thinking of him and of her sister, images past and present wound up in one another. She worried about the crowd he ran with, about his anger and his moods, about things he had done that could never be undone. She met her worries in the same old way, Whatever the hour, she would rise to her feet and climb the attic stairs to Patrick's bedroom so that she might lay eyes on him. This was a bargain she struck, a ritual to guarantee safety. Nothing truly bad could happen if she was expecting it. Over the years, there were times when one of her other three consumed her thoughts. As they got older, Nora knew them better. That was something no one ever told you, that you would have to get to know your own children. John wanted too much to please her. Bridget was a hopeless tomboy. They had carried these traits along with them into adulthood. When Brian, her baby, moved away, Nora worried. She worried ever more so when he moved back in. But it was Patrick who weighed most on her mind. He was 50 now. For the past several months, the old fear had returned. Ever since John kicked things up again, things she had long considered safely in the past. Unable to check on Patrick on those nights when the feeling arose, Nora would switch on the lamp and shuffle through her prayer cards until she came to St. Monica, patron saint of mothers with difficult children. She slept with the card face up on Charlie's empty pillow. Tonight, for once, she hadn't been thinking of Patrick. Of all things, she was thinking about the boiler down cellar. It had been clanging since just after supper. Adjusting the temperature didn't help. Nora thought she might have to bleed the pipes. As a last resort, she tried saying a rosary to make it stop. When this seemed to do the trick, she went to bed with a fat grin on her face, thus assured of her own powers. She was awakened not long after by the ringing telephone, a stranger's voice saying there had been an accident. She should come right away. By the time she reached the emergency room, pink flannel pajamas under her winter coat, 
Patrick was already gone. That was good. That was that was sad too. You got that. Oh, good. Okay, thank <laughs> you got God. Sad covered. <laughs> thank you. Those were all really beautiful readings, and uh, I think we're feeling warmed up. Right? We're ready to tackle some of the. I feel so depressed the, now. <laughs> the big issues, but I would like to just say I think we are living in a really crazy and tumultuous time. And I know that there are people out there who will say, no, it's just like every other time. But it feels different to me. It feels very, very different to me. And I'll preface this by also saying that I really do believe, I'm a believer that the personal is political. And it is very hard in any of our stories to take out or separate our individual stories from the cultural and political moment in which we are telling them. And so then I guess my question is, you know, you all arguably are tackling some fairly charged subject matter. And, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. Which comes first? Is it the story or is it the issue or the subject matter that you wish to explore? Or is it a mix? And you don't all have to answer. I just, if it speaks to one of you, I'd love to hear from you. I think it's I think it's the story. I mean for me, I love the stories. I love big stories. I love the epic story. You know, I always wanted an epic story in Hidden Figures for these women because, you know, I wanted to be the one out there. I didn't have to be always Lawrence of Arabia or <laughs> astronauts or you know what I mean like these black women are also, you know, I wanted them to have that epic story. So I think that there is so much power in a gripping story that, you know, you lead with that and then you infuse, the meaning comes. I mean, if you're careful in crafting the story, the meaning comes with it. Um, but, you know, I, I, there are a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of writing, there are a lot of texts about these issues that are different than story, but I personally believe very strongly in the transformative power of story and the power of story and narrative to do what facts alone can't do. I completely agree with you there. <laughs> Margaret looked at me when she was like, I didn't dream of being Lawrence of Arabia, and I want to stress... Um, <laughs> I, just, I, I actually really love Lawrence of Arabia. He has a Welsh story, connection, so I but, could have aspired, um, you I suppose. You know, I, we all get to have be protagonists of our yeah. own stories. I, I was thinking about um, of stories coming before the issues, for me, in a slightly different way, not something that's planned, it's something that feels like luck, either good or bad, I'm not quite sure. Um, so I have been reading that section about Vincent Chin uh, from the book for a while now, but it wasn't what I... Uh, first started reading when I first went out on tour, or what I thought I would read from when I first went on tour. It was also the last part of the book written, but it was still written uh, probably three or four years ago. And it felt very much like a narrative that was part of the history of the Chinese-American, the Asian-American experience in the US. And it, one of the reasons I read it now, but also one of the things that horrifies me is it feels like it's becoming increasingly timely in our current moment. Um, but I couldn't claim wouldn't want to, um, to have foreseen that. Um, I mean, I had something of the same experience when I was working on my first novel, The Welsh Girl, which is a book about World War II and about um, German prisoners of war and to some degree about our treatment of German prisoners of war. I began that in 99, um, post 
when we had to think about our own wartime experience, our own treatment of prisoners of war at Guantanamo Bay or Abu Ghraib, uh, it felt as though the times were catching up with the history. And in both of the books I've written that are historical to some degree, I've been surprised to find that the present moment has sort of been um, catching up with and sometimes even overwhelming the fiction. It's been a struggle sometimes to write those fictions when the present events have been catching up with them in some ways. Um, I don't claim to be foresightful in this regard. In fact, quite the opposite. I had a, um, I had a Donald Trump epigraph uh, to that section about Vincent Chin. Um, uh, Donald Trump called the Chinese something quite mean uh, back in 2012. Uh, and it was an epithet that was used in the fight that led to Vincent's death. And I had that epigraph on that piece for a while, and then about a year before the book came out, about a year before the election, uh, my editor said, you know, that's an interesting epigraph, but um, going to be very dated very soon. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so we took it out. Uh, I'm still fairly happy not to have that language in the book, I should say, um, but I, you know, I don't claim to see the future in those ways. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I think the two, for me, are, are really and for everyone are really sort of inextricably linked because um, like each of us has written such a different book and none of us could have written the other's book, right? Um, for, for me, I think uh, it all uh, begins with an obsession. That's really, you know, when I, uh, I've been doing this now for my first book came out nine years ago. So I've been on many panels with many writers and I noticed over time that this word obsession is one that gets used a lot. And um, there are a lot of writers in this room, so I think you know what I mean too. There's just something that takes hold and you're not even always sure why. Um, you know, I wanted to write this novel about cloistered nuns and believe me when I tell you that no one wanted me to write a novel about cloistered nuns, including me, but I just couldn't let it go. Um, for me, like the, the sort of, uh, obsession or I think sort of thing that connects all of my books is uh, I'm very interested in the idea that the moment a woman is born will determine a lot about who she's allowed to become. Um, and uh, my books are all really different from one another, but I think that comes up in all of them. Um, I had kind of a similar experience with the sort of uh, writing of this novel because it is very much about immigration. And um, the two sisters in the book come from a town in Ireland called Milltown Mall Bay, which is where my own great-grandmother immigrated from. And uh, the first time I ever went to this town, the my great-grandmother grew up in a one-room stone cottage, basically, a sh basically a shack. And um, it is still standing, and it is now a tool shed on somebody's farm. So I went there, and I sat or stood in this room, and it was like the first time that it really dawned on me, uh, I'm only American because of her. She came over here at the age of 17 alone, and that also was really extraordinary to me. And the more I read about Irish immigration, the more I learned that what is specific to it is that often it was young women traveling alone. Um, so I wrote this book, but I wasn't thinking that it was political at all. Uh, but it came out uh, as immigration had once again become this really huge issue. Uh, I had written an op-ed for the New York Times 
because when you have a book come out, you write things, right, to promote the book. So I had written this book, uh, this op-ed, and it was actually held for a long time because it was not particularly pertinent to anything. But it was about, um, you know, being raised... Uh, to be very proud that we are 100% Irish and how now people in my family are taking the like DNA home tests and finding out, you know, no one's really 100% anything. Um, so it had the best headline. It was, Kiss Me, I'm Pretty Sure I'm Irish, which I didn't write, but I loved that. Um, but when that piece came out, it was perceived as really political and being about immigration. And uh, that wasn't really what I was thinking about when I wrote it. That's fascinating. <laughs> okay, I want to change topics just slightly, um, but I'd like to talk about cultural appropriation, which I think is a topic on every writer's mind, who gets to write what and why. And you expressed some interest in this, and there was some discussion in your workshop, so let's go. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> um, this, you know, I, I think this is a really important topic, and, um, you know, Aaron and I, my husband and I, have had conversations about it. I've had conversations with other writers, other people, um, and I'm really interested in this because I feel very entitled to write the story that I want to write. And I'm very thankful for generations of writers in general, of black writers, of female writers, of writers about all kinds of topics, you know, just brilliant writers of all kinds who have given me uh, what I feel is the entitlement to tell the story that I want to tell about whom I want to tell it in my voice. I am very interested, I am very sensitive to all of these issues, but I'm also very interested um, uh, in the debate about who gets to tell the story and being somebody who is both sensitive to stories um, just in my specific case, of African Americans being told in a way that I feel is true, but also being a writer who feels that everyone has a right to tell the story, you know, to tell the true story. Um, I, I, I am really interested in this debate because um, a lot of times we don't even allow ourselves to have the debate. You know, that, that so many times we, uh, for example, may have... Uh, see an instance of uh, a white writer writing about a non-white character or a man writing about a female character or, you know, you can put any, any number of juxtapositions. And before we even judge the work as, as literature, before we listen to the argument or read the argument that the person is, is talking about, we close the door to that. And, you know, as somebody who has a really, really hard time with asymmetrical logic, you know, sort of the engineer, scientist person in me, I, you know, I have a really hard time with that. I am, I am really interested in this group of writers, um, many writers from different backgrounds, from different eras, you know, I think there is a, a big, big difference, difference right? in generation in terms of how this is perceived. I am, I was, I just wanted to say, you know what? Let's open, let's, let's say that this is a space where we are actually going to have that conversation and, and not shut it down. 
because I, I do feel that it is our job, and Peter um, had a wonderful YouTube video where he talks about this. And, you know, and I think this idea, regardless of where you come down on the subject, we really have to be willing to open the conversation and to have those conversations. Okay, that's my, my, my <laughs> cue. Um, it is an enormously complicated and nuanced question, uh, which I think resists the kind of two camps model of you can do anything and you can't do anything. Right. Um, and I think those things, those positions both make me quite anxious. And I should say, maybe the, the first thing to say, because this is an area of, um, of great anxiety for all of us, Right? Um, I think it's because it's, it also speaks to a kind of unconscious movement. We're always most anxious, I think, about our unconscious biases, moments where we've tripped ourselves up, we've revealed something about ourselves. Um, so maybe by way of beginning to, I don't know, maybe put people at ease or uh, confessing, I have appropriated material. I feel that I am engaged in cultural appropriation when I write about a Chinese character uh, in the 19th century. I'm appropriating an experience that is divorced from me in time. I'm appropriating an experience that is divorced from me in language. I'm, to some degree, significantly, appropriating an experience that is divorced from me in culture. Um, I have a connection to that character. I feel a passion for that character. But I'm aware that I'm making efforts to reach across a divide to try and understand that character. Um, I should say that that desire to want to reach across a divide to understand how the other lives and thinks and feels um, was inculcated in me in an experience that we all share, which is the experience of reading. We all, as readers, are thrilled by, excited by, value the engagement with other lives that are not our own through fiction and on the page. Um, as writers, we would defend what we do as fiction writers, as writers in general, of trying to create that experience for readers. We think of that as one of the cultural values, one of the utilitarian even values, societal, societally utilitarian values of what we do as writers. Um, it seems very odd since we all as writers begin as readers to then deny writers that opportunity to reach imaginatively into the other. Um, that said, uh, and while I sympathize very much with uh, as a writer and as a teacher of writing, any resistance to the idea of censorship, you can't do X, you can't write this. Um, I'm also very aware that the complexities here uh, create sensitivities that we need to be aware of, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that um, while there may be a technical challenge to writing about the other, how do we do with the research, how do we think our way into that point of view, there is a difference for a man to write from a woman's point of view than from a woman to write from a man's point of view. Okay? That is a culturally shaped difference that is also shaped by our history, shaped, amongst other things, by rape and the history of that. Uh, it is true that for a white writer to write about a colored character or, uh, or for a writer of color to write about a white character are different activities because those things are shaped by histories of racism, by histories of colonialism, of course, as well. So there's power imbalances are things I think we have to be conscious of. And yet, that does not mean there's a prohibition, it seems to me. Uh, you know, there's a, what I often think about uh, these two camps that say, I can do anything and you can't do that at all because you're not allowed to do that, um, they represent poles of a spectrum, but the most of us exist somewhere on that spectrum. And I think it's kind of useful to think that I can do this, but boy, it's going to be hard to do it well, right? And 
the first step to doing it well is that consciousness of the difficulty, the consciousness of how am I going to track, try and achieve this. You know, one of the ways we often talk about that is in the context of respect. I have to respect the other if I'm going to make that leap. And I think that's a, that's a valuable word. We do it through research, we do it imaginatively, we do it through talking to other people, trying to think ourselves into those spaces. Um, but actually, I, 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 I've come to be a little resistant to the word respect, because respect feels as though I offer you my respect. I, I raise you up in my eyes by offering you respect. That also feels like a kind of power dynamic. When I try and approach material that is other than myself, I, I try to approach it less with respect than with humility. Uh, I may not be able to do this. I don't know enough about this. I have to learn more about this. Probably, in the end, I will still fall short of my goal. But that humility also feels like a space of sincerity in that approach, I think. Um, so those are a, a few of the things I think about. I mean, it, it's tricky because I think we're also... Margot, I, I may have talked about this with you on a panel previously, but I remember being reminded of it when I was reading Hidden Figures. Um, it speaks to the issue of time, the historical moment that we're in, the political moment we're in incredibly charged at the moment. Um, and so we look back sometimes on past uh, practitioners with a kind of judgment, the judgment of our more enlightened selves. Um, so I, I think about an instance of uh, an older white Jewish man writing a young female African-American character and making her wear a miniskirt throughout the narrative that he writes. And I'm thinking of um, Lieutenant Uhura in Star Trek, mm -hmm. right? Uh, written by Gene Roddenberry, an older uh, Jewish man. Um, and, <laughs> and so it, were that to happen today, a little anxious about that, possibly. It would be much more preferable to me uh, for somebody else to write that character, probably. Uh, but as Margot reminded me, and I, I remembered this story from years ago, um, Star Trek was Martin, one of Martin Luther King's favorite shows. And he encouraged Nichelle Nichols, who plays Uhuru, to stay on the show because of the positive representation she uh, represented. Um, so it's easy for us, I think, to, to judge the past and maybe even to judge others we should probably remember that the future will judge us, right? Um, the progress we have made is not because we stand on the shoulders of moral pygmies, it's because we probably stand, I hope, on the shoulders of people who are at least our own stature. Um, and it's useful, I think, to remember that along the way. Oh, that was wonderful. Um, I mean, I feel like I should just say ditto and move on, but I will, I'll say a little more. Um, for me, so not every fiction writer feels this way, but uh, my background is in journalism and uh, being a researcher. And so um, I approach my fiction always starting from a place of research. I would never dare set a story in Cleveland because I've only been there once and I don't know enough about it. Um, so can we write about other cultures? Um, yes, but you have to really know what you're talking about. And the biggest thing is to resist stereotype. Um, if you watch a popular movie from even like 10 years ago, I don't know why, but this has happened to me like three times recently where I've happened to catch a movie on TV that's about 10 years old and I just think, oh my God, we actually have made progress because none of those things would be allowed to exist in a movie. Uh, the way they're portraying women, the way they're portraying minorities, like, no way. Uh, so, you know, there's that. Um, I guess there's always a question, I mean, for me, like even writing these characters who came from Ireland, this is just how I write. 
but I went to this town in Ireland. I interviewed old ladies who would be the age my, of my characters, and I asked them every little detail. What did you eat for breakfast when you were a kid? What were your chores on the farm? What did you get for a Christmas present? Because um, I want to get it right. I don't want to get any of those things wrong. Uh, and those are like technically my own people, right? So um, I think when you are, if you decide you're going to write about someone else, someone sort of foreign to you, it's just your responsibility to get it right to not depend on stereotypes, and to go and ask someone like that character about what it is to be them, um, and always kind of approach your characters with empathy. Um, yeah, I, I think that issue of empathy is really important. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that for writing Hidden Figures that is really driving, was really driving me in a way that became clear over the course of the writing, and also for the next book, is that I wanted the, the history of these women to be considered American history, even as it was considered black history and women's history. And I wanted everybody in this room to see this history as their history as well. You know, and I really want, you know, I mean, Peter, reading your book, I, you know, I felt like I learned something about my history that I did not really know was my history, that I should know. And, you know, for example, in the South, though, you can't write about black history without writing about white people and vice versa. You know, for a long time, we were taught Southern history. I mean, even when I was growing up, and there were very few black people except for Martin Luther King and George Washington Carver. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so I do think that we, even as we're very sensitive and the, the, the discipline of research is, is so critically important, that we have to be conscious that we are all connected and we have to have that empathy and, and allowing the space for um, a sensitive treatment of what is all of our history. Hopefully that's, that's the path, even as we're bound by these things of the past, hopefully that, that's where we're moving yeah. for the future. Yeah. I think also there's this thing of, um, you know, there's recently been this, we actually had a whole conversation about this in my class yesterday, that, you know, there's been this conversation about um, Hank Azaria doing the voice of, is it a boo or a poo? A poo on The Simpsons and, and how, you know, we've now finally come to this point where um, he's not going to do it anymore. Um, that, I think, is like, you have to kind of question yourself. Why am I writing this character who's other than me? Um, is it... Am I resorting to some kind of stereotype? Like, what do I know about this person, right? Like, if all you've ever, if the only Indian person you've ever known is a poo, don't write about Indian people unless you <laughs> go talk to some about it. Um, and so that's just that um, curiosity. I think that's the thing. That has to be the source of wanting to write someone who isn't you. Curiosity, um, rather than laziness and, like, stereotyping. It is almost time, and it actually is time, for me to turn it over to audience questions, but I'm feeling really greedy about one last question that I'm hoping we can answer quickly, and that is, because this really, you know, I think about this a lot, and that is, should we read and engage with wonderful writers who may or may not have done bad things, writers and artists, and we all 
you know, we're, it, it's such a moment in this Me Too era. I mean, there are, other, there are other movements too, but how do you feel about this? How, what's your response to that? I mean, I think it depends a little bit on how black and white the case is. Look at your face, Courtney. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's painful, right? And, you know, there are some easy lines to draw, and then there are some that are much more complicated. Um, oh, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I, I have to say my favorite, my favorite movies of all time have always been When Harry Met Sally and Annie Hall, which I would argue are kind of the same movie. Mm -hmm. um, I stopped watching Woody Allen a few years ago, like out of, you know, yeah. as a personal protest. I'm just not going to watch any Woody Allen. Last year on my birthday, I came home and um, my husband had queued up Annie Hall for me on Netflix. And he's like, you can just watch it once because it's your birthday. <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. I, um, it's also like, what are the degrees? Because, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's so great that we took down all these Confederate statues. That to me feels right. Um, and yet I'm, I'm disturbed a little bit by um, like erasing someone's body of work because of something they've done, because I just don't know where that ends and what the limits are on that. And I'm not sure it's the best to um, erase bad things. I think it's important to remember bad things uh, so that we don't repeat them. Um, I don't know. And, like, I don't care. I mean, it's, this is such a real question, yeah, you know, it's and it's so hard present. to... It's so like, present. It's so present, Like, I don't really care if, like, um, uh, Harvey Weinstein is, like, stripped of his BAFTA, you know, membership or something. I just, like, it seems so odd to me. Um, and where does it begin and where does it end? I don't know. I'm confused. I, I need the villains and the heroes. You know, I really do. I, I really need to know the world as it was. Okay. I need to know how it's changed. Yeah. Um, you know, I have, like, Douglas Southall Freeman's biography of Robert E. Lee on my Kindle, which, you know, at some point I'm going to sit down and read, which was sort of the book that really, you know, kind of in a modern way created this Robert E. Lee myth of the great, you know, kind, you know, whatever. I need to know that, you know, because yeah. it's my history too, and it's the hard parts, and it's the, you know, I need to know the, the, the evil parts. I need to know if there were good parts, you know. I mean, I think in some ways it's harder for us to accept that there are kind and good parts in the evil people than to say that there are evil parts in the good people, but we have to do both. Right. And I, I really feel that I, I need that. Otherwise, I am not going to be doing my job when it comes to learning about somebody that I'm going to write about, and I have to decide how to portray them. Yeah. So. I, I, it's hard, you know, and, and there are a lot of people that I may disagree with and that I abhor, um, but I really, I feel this, I need those stories too. I really need those stories too. Right. Oh, I, you know, the, the guy on the stage should not be having the last word on this particular topic, um, <laughs> but it shouldn't have the first word either, so I... I yeah. um, and I, 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 you know, I, I, I like Courtney especially... Um, I'm very uncertain about this question. I mean, with Woody Allen, who I also, Manny Hall, big for me, 
Um, I guess the question, I haven't seen it for a long time, uh, and I suppose the acid test, and I'm kind of curious about your experience of this, is was it, was it still enjoyable? Right? Could it still be enjoyed knowing what you know? And I, I don't know that answer for myself yet, I, and maybe I should find that out, but that would be a, a question, I suppose. Because then what does it say about us if we can enjoy it? Right? So that's part of the challenge of this space. Um, but you began um, by asking, can we read uh, the work of writers who are bad people? And we all do that all the time. Because I would... Actually, not bad people, but who have done bad things, because I think there, there is a difference sure, in sure. there. <laughs> uh, well, but well, I, I like that distinction. Yeah. Uh, that does feel important. Um, but I would argue that every writer has done a bad thing. Absolutely. Uh, many of them, it, with, with, with the exception of my fellow that's panelists. My next, I, that's my next question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we write out of unresolved regret. I know I do. I write a lot about questions of... Um, shame and guilt, those are power sources that are the wellsprings of my work in some ways. Um, I like to disguise those things, I confess, and grant them to characters. Um, to the, idea, the idea that people who have never done a bad thing could write fiction actually seems anathema to me or <laughs> impossible to imagine. I think about my undergraduates, for instance, when they're writing fiction, um, Sometimes that fiction does not include a character who's capable of doing a bad thing because they are lucky enough at their age to have not yet done an irreparably bad thing. Right? Um, when I see them a little bit later or when I see them as graduate students, many of them have had that experience and I can feel the distinction uh, in their work. Um, that doesn't answer the question on the case right. by case, of course. No, and, and that's fine. And, and I actually apologize to everyone because I have definitely gone over and I really, we want to hear your questions. I cannot see a single person out there, so hopefully there are some people running around with mics. Borrow two mics, you'll so share. Do you mind sharing? Thanks. Oh, um, yeah. And anyone, anyone up front? <laughs> can I add, actually, while we're waiting, can I add to this last point? Um, oh, what was I going to say? I can't remember now. Oh, my God. Oh, um, oh I, was, I was just going to say that, uh, and I don't even know if it necessarily relates to what you're asking, but I, I think it is important to, like, not um, whitewash what's happening and what's happened. Um, the fact that like so many of us are in tears every night over these children separated from their parents uh, by a government that's trying to control a lot of things, like that's not new. That's actually been done a lot of times, a lot of ways with a lot of different kinds of families. And I think that's just one example of like know your history because if you don't, we are doomed to repeat it. So earlier, whoa, sorry. So earlier this week, we talked about um, how fiction, the, one of the purposes of fiction is to build empathy for another, for an other, I guess, in that capital sense. So when you're talking about something as complicated as um, 
you know, writing about another culture or something that's unfamiliar to you. Isn't that an exercise in empathy? And like, how do you square that with what you're writing? She's in my workshop. <laughs> I have the best workshop ever. We've decided we're going to just stay together after the week and keep meeting every day just for the rest of our lives. Um, we'll move from one person's city to the next each day. Um, uh, well, I love that you asked this because it was what I planned to talk about today, but we ran out of time. We're actually going to talk about it tomorrow. But um, for me, it, it comes up in a, in a conversation about uh, point of view. Um, the reason, I always write in multiple points of view, every book, and I, I always want to write a book that's just one point of view, but I keep coming back to this multiple thing. Um, a character I think about a lot, and this is not like a cultural appropriation thing, but um, I was writing a character in my book, Maine, who was like this woman in her 50s, the sister-in-law in the family, and she was probably, in a sort of mean-spirited way, based on a lot of women I know. Like, she was the person who was just like, my kids are perfect, my house is perfect, everything I do is perfect. And in the beginning, I was, always, I was almost making fun of her. Um, but she came to actually be my favorite character in that book, because what I had to do as a fiction writer was go into her head and figure out, why is she like that? Why does she feel the need to act that way? And by the end of it, I had so much sympathy for her um, that I just loved her the most of anyone because I knew she was working the hardest to present this facade. Um, so I think that that exercise and empathy of imagining um, what the other is going through, um, I already said this once and now I'm gonna say it again, so if you were at the last panel, can I say it, Adrian? Yeah, okay. Uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, our, not to be like the crazy political one on the panel, but, you know, we have a president who proudly declared that he doesn't read books. And I don't see him as somebody with a lot of sympathy for others, for the other. Um, and I think these two things are highly connected. So when we write, when we read, we are always building empathy just by understanding that not everyone is like us. Um, yeah. I have a question that's kind of a, I'd love to hear you all sound off on this. Um, in talking about cultural appropriation, last summer I was at a, another lovely literary conference and Danielle Evans was giving a talk on this topic. And one thing that she said was, if you're trying to write about someone from another culture, have you, ask yourself, have you spent time with people of this culture or background um, in situations where you are the minority and these people get to talk freely uh, without feeling like they need to censor themselves because you are there and you're in the, major the majority. She also was saying, do you consume their entertainment? Do you consume their media? Um, which I was taking as a way of saying, have you, have you really taken the time to get to know and to empathize? Um, and I feel like it's such a tough question because what she was doing in some ways was providing like this 
maybe slightly more concrete path towards coming towards this answer. But I'd be curious to hear what you all have to say about it. You know, I think one of the things that makes this topic so hard is because there are no right answers. Um, and also what makes it so um, charged and so powerful because it's sort of the, the, the default job of the writer, whether you are writing about somebody who actually lived or somebody who is, um, is you know, a fictional character, to authentically and accurately and truthfully represent that person to other people. I mean, that is a tremendous position of trust, whether the person is real, you know, a, a, an actual living person or a fictional person, you know, I mean, that is, and this idea of doing it um, from someone, of someone who may not be like you for an, any number of reasons, kind of takes that and it raises the stakes. Um, and then, you know, I do think that it raises the stakes another level when if you do that in a way that causes a misstep, um, whereas it might have been a private thing that, you know, that you could fix on your own or, you know, have somebody take you aside and say, okay, maybe you shouldn't do that. Um, the chances now are that, well, maybe it turns into some huge Twitter thing and, you know, people are hashtagging you and taking you down in a public way for something that you did not intend. And I think that also makes it very hard for people to feel free to, um, to do that. So, you know, I... I, I don't know the answer to that. I think those are really good questions. Um, I, I do believe there is, you know, that you have to look and say, am I, uh, you know, the, the question that we always ask ourselves, you know, I felt this when writing about black women that I had grown up with, that I had a very similar, you know, experience with, and was still extremely concerned about my ability to accurately and authentically represent them to other people in a way that did them justice, but also reflected them as fully and flawed human beings. So, you know, I, I really think that that has to be the starting point for all of this. And that's not an answer to the question, but I, you know, I don't know that, I think each person has to make their own judgment um, the same way every writer has to select their own story and their own point of view. I think that also, um, at the same time that we're having this conversation, and it seems like a lot of it's happening everywhere, wherever writers are about appropriation and whether it's okay, the other thing that has to happen is that underrepresented groups need to be lifted up to tell their own stories. Um, when I talk about this idea of appropriation, I guess, and I think about it in terms of my own books, it's could I never have a black character in any of my books? No, I can, you know, and I and I do. Um, but I am not going to write a novel about you know a black girl growing up on the south side of Chicago because the person who should write that book is a black girl who grew up on the south side of Chicago. I think, um, and uh, you know. There are a lot of, I mean, this, this book, um, They're There, that just came out, that everyone's crazy about. You know, that's an example of someone who just is telling the story of uh, Native Americans in this country, and nobody could tell it better uh, through doing research or interviewing people. It just, it couldn't happen. 
Boy, um, I, I, I agree with much of what has been said. I think, though, there's that goal where you think about appropriation of doing all the research, doing all the thoughtful stuff. I really like what Danielle suggests. Um, but the goal is then we want to get it right, right? and we aspire to that. Uh, but like, And the stakes seem very high about getting it right. But it's also worth remembering that it's impossible to get it right. That's part of the humility of this act. It's impossible to do it perfectly. Um, the idea of um, uh, an African-American girl from the south side of Chicago writing that story, yes, she has a, a distinct, deeply ingrained sense of her own story. But my own sense of, say, writers from the Asian-American community is you write that story and somebody else in that community in this case, potentially another African-American girl growing up on the south side of Chicago, could say, that's not my story. You did not get that right. It's very hard for any of us. And this is the, sometimes the burden of writers of color. How do we represent a community? And it's impossible to do that. Sometimes the voices that critique us come from within the community. Who are you to speak for me? And, you know, I've heard wonderful things about their, their, that, that novel, but somewhere down the line, a Native American writer, an aspiring writer, is going to say, not my story doesn't do justice to my And that's okay, story. because, I mean, I wrote a, uh, this is like so not a charged thing, but I wrote a novel about Smith College. I went to Smith College. You wouldn't believe the number of women who are like, that's not my Smith College. And my answer to them is, awesome, go write your, about your Smith College. That's right. okay. And that's why we write. We write because there's a story that we want to tell that hasn't quite yet been told. I, yeah. exactly. I finally have a mic back, people. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> We are running about 10 minutes over. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you for being such a wonderful audience. Thank you three for really speaking about all these things. It's beautiful. If you would like to buy a book, they are up there. The authors will be over there signing copies. And thank you all so much for coming tonight. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Television. Visit grassrootstv.org for on-demand community archive footage, as well as educational, inspiring, and entertaining local programming. A contribution to Grassroots TV allows us to bring your voice to the valley and to preserve media that will be enjoyed by future generations. Visit us at grassrootstv.org and follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Twitter. We encourage you to support all the local businesses and citizens that generously underwrite grassroots programming and play an integral role in nurturing open communication among the residents of the Roaring Fork Valley since 1972. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Community Network.